from the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Thursday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Father Brian Mullady is in the house. He's ready to answer your questions. If you've got a question, give us a phone call. It's a toll-free number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. And if you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is 1-205-271-2985, and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And um, if you'd like to uh, email your question, that email address is openline at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams. Charles Beery is our celebrity producer today. Uh, Michael McCall feeling a little bit under the weather today, so keep him in your prayers. Our phone screener is Matt Gubensky, and Jeff Burson, magnificent person, is handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every single Thursday, Dominican Father Brian Mullady, how are you? Just peachy, thank you. So today you're going to talk a little bit about holy wisdom. So I'll just shut up and get out of the way for this topic. <laughs> <laughs> well, the readings for Mass today and also this Sunday are all about holy wisdom. And as you know, in the time after Pentecost, the Church presents various uh, experiences to us that are a part of grace and the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And the Holy Spirit of wisdom, as you know, wisdom is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, is exceedingly necessary for human beings to be fully and completely human. In fact, there can be no true humanism without the wisdom which the Holy Spirit teaches us. When Thomas Aquinas began his book, the Summa Contra Gentiles, the famous line, and I think it's actually from Aristotle, is sapientus est ordinare, which means the office of the wise man is to order. Now, we have one order from reason, and this is a proper order, it's true, it's good, as which we view the universe in our senses, and from it we begin to uh, make connections between all the various beings that exist. In a kind of hierarchy, you could say that first you have the matter, and then you have cellular life, so that you have life, and then from that you have animal life, which is at a higher experience, because animals are able to unify more beings in themselves. And then uh, through knowledge and, and, and um, feelings, and then finally, you have human life, in which because of intelligence, we have the ability, you know, the intellect is in a sense, 
equal to the whole world. And then above that order, you have the angels, and finally you have God. Now, without grace, we look on this from the bottom up. In other words, we look at time first, and then we consider eternity in the perspective of time. That doesn't mean to say what we're considering is false, but it's not the full picture. And the reason is because, and people today in science, many of them believe in an ordering mind, you could say. If you cannot understand the universe the way it was made fully, unless you understand it from the point of view of the ordering mind. So in order for us to do that, we have to experience through grace the transformation and being elevated from time to eternity while on earth. And you know that um, sanctifying grace is defined as a change in the nature of our souls which allows us to participate in God's own inner nature. In other words, to have a loving colloquy with the Holy Trinity. And when we do that, that transforms our point of view. So we now see time from the perspective of eternity. And our experience of this should lead us to great love, but also to great humility. In the Gospel passage today, we have the famous example of Christ telling the fishermen, Peter and company, where to fish. Now, he's not a fisherman, right? And they've said they've been toiling all night, which is the proper time to catch fish. All fishermen know this. And they're tired. And yet, because of his word, they go out again and, you know, have this miraculous draft in which the boats are filled and the nets are left to breaking almost and things like that. The reaction of Simon Peter to this, which is a divine wisdom, in, uh, who's, who's, to which we're invited by Christ, is what? Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. In other words, in humility, he realizes he didn't do this. He couldn't have done it. It was something that he had to receive from above. And then Christ says, no, from now on, you'll be fishers of men because you'll use all the knowledge you have to try to entice those little fish to be caught, but you'll now use it in a more intellectual, loving sense to try to help people to convert. I remember when I was young, if a priest got a person who hadn't been to confession, you know, let's say for 30 years to come to confession, he'd say, oh, I got a big fish today. <laughs> because this is a divinely invoked wisdom. And the same thing is true with us. Later this month, I'm going to talk more about this then. We're going to celebrate the exaltation of the cross. Now, how could you exalt something like the cross? When you think about it, our religion has the most gruesome symbol as its, <laughs> as its representation. I mean, the death by crucifixion is one of the most horrible torments ever invented by man. And yet for us... The cross shines forth in glory because it's by the cross that we realize that we've been saved. And we also, in wisdom, are called upon to see where we need, as a sinful man, to address those issues in our character with Christ's help, which keep us from receiving this fullness of divine wisdom taught by the Holy Spirit. And in this wisdom, uh, 
you see the world again from a divine perspective. In the famous prayer, Come Holy Spirit, the uh, prayer that you say after the antiphon is, uh, you know, send your spirit into our hearts to have us experience truly, being truly wise. Endeavor to rejoice in his consolation. So each of us as Christians, each of you need to know in holiness, which is what you're called to because of your baptism, you're called to get beyond time and the secondary causes and to see things from God's perspective. Send forth your spirit and they shall be created. And in us, because of this new perspective, you will renew the face of the earth. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Wide open phone lines, and it's a free phone call for you anywhere in North America. Um, Colin called in from Cincinnati, Father, and he asked the question, is it problematic to call oneself a liberal Catholic or conservative Catholic? One seems like an oxymoron, and the other seems redundant. <laughs> well, I, I do think it's uh, not proper. It's something we do all the time because it emphasizes whether we think that the church can change its teaching substantially or not. But the, the thing, those are political terms, and the church is not really a political state. And so what I prefer to use is mainstream Catholic. And all the others are kind of on the fringes of that. Uh, and they don't take their religion that seriously, and they often think that what mainstream Catholics have believed for 2,000 years can be altered. And they use what they call the spirit of Vatican II for that. Well, anybody who's read Vatican II, it's true, it will bear that interpretation some of the people who wrote the documents purposely did so to make them ambiguous, but that's not the rubric under which the bishops approved them. For the bishops, it wasn't, they weren't ambiguous at all. And so, for example, the most liberal document, for example, Gaudium et Spes, they say, the Church of the Modern World. Well, my goodness, that has an excellent example of the theology of original sin. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, it's back to school time, and EWTN's Religious Catalog has got a really fun item we're going to talk about today. The Journeys of St. Paul. Um, school is back in session, as I mentioned, but don't let family time get pushed aside. The Journeys of St. Paul is a board game, and it's great for ages 8 to adult. It lets you become one of several messengers sent to deliver one of St. Paul's monumentous letters. 
Your mission, be the first to cross the city gate and deliver St. Paul's letter to its secret destination. But beware, the Romans are intent on seeking and destroying all Christians, so the chase may be on. This adventure requires cleverness, courage, and tenacity with billions of souls at stake. It's available now at EWTN's Religious Catalog. That's EWTNRC.com. Offering free standard shipping on online orders of $75 or more. Standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. Use the code FREE at checkout. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. To the phones we go. First up today is Raymond in Fort Worth, Texas. Listening on the Amazon Echo. Raymond, you're on with Father Brian Mullady. Hi, thanks for taking my call so early. I'm the first one. Wow, <laughs> didn't expect that. Thank you, appreciate it. So, mm-hmm. Father, um, I'm looking at um, friends and family, whether they be close or far away, you know, um, just disappearing from my, my, my circle, my family circle, so to speak. Um, and it's all really based on being... Uh, a traditional conservative Catholic person. In other words, somebody like Nancy Pelosi or Joe Biden would not be in my family circle these days. And it would happen. So, so what, what about that situation, Father? The question, as far as I would, be, would tell you, is all kinds of... Um, Families have divided over politics in this country. And what you have to try to do is just to find something you can agree on and you can discuss that you don't terribly disagree on. I mean, my own family, my brother and sister, we're totally opposites when it comes to politics and even in some ways when it comes to religion. So, but we kind of, when we get together, we talk about the family mostly. We don't talk about anything controversial. And I would suggest that that might be the key to just avoid controversial topics because um, it's, many people in the past have had family is divide over politics. I'm sure in the Civil War this was a mm-hmm. terrible, terrible problem. But still, the, after all, the one good thing about the Civil War was that even though they hated each other on one level, they realized that they were brothers or friends or whatever on another level. I remember that uh, one of the greatest scenes in the film, The Gettysburg, which is pretty true to fact, was before the battle of um, you know, Pickett's Charge, one of the generals asked to inquire after the health of one of the Union generals because they'd been friends before the war. And so when he got to the wall, he managed to make it to the wall, which almost nobody did. I I loved it when the the Confederates would make it to the wall and the Union troops would pull him over the wall and say, welcome to the promised land, (laughs) because everybody was dying. But he was wounded, and he said, may I inquire after the health of General so-and-so? And they said, well, he's been shot too. And the Confederate general started to cry, and he said, we can't both die on the same day. So they had a still affection for each other, but it was just not on a certain level and about a certain subject. But today, for some reason, everybody's vilified everybody else, and they treat them like, well, you know, we were just told, what, that uh, 
anybody who uh, is a Republican supporter of certain people is a fascist, which is absolutely stupid. I'm sorry. Uh, if they had any idea what they meant by fascism, what the fascists believed, they wouldn't be able to say that, but they don't. They have a, a kind of straw man picture of what Nazism or fascism was about. For one thing, they think it's conservative. And they have to remember that the Nazi is short for National Socialist Party. I mean, they were liberals, big time. So, I mean, it's important to find, to find common ground where as a family you can just relate to each other and kind of an unspoken agreement just not discuss certain subjects, that's all. I think that's good advice. Thanks, Raymond. We appreciate the phone call. I've got an email from Jerry in San Diego, and she says, What is the Catholic Church teaching on evolution? We Catholics don't believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible except the Gospels, so are we required to believe in Adam and Eve, or can we believe in evolution as long as we acknowledge God is behind it? All right, well, I, there are two things you have to say about this, and there's never been an official Catholic position on Darwinian evolution up to a point. Um, uh, it's nuanced, again, the discussion of this. First of all, uh, Pius Twelfth defined in Humani Generis in 1950 that the human race had to have an origin from two people. So this is because of the doctrine of original sin. So from that point of view, you have to hold that. The second problem is that you can't generate spirit from matter. So even if there was a pre-human creature who looked like a human being partially and who acted like a human being partially and perhaps even stood upright homo erectus or something like that, that they can't generate a spiritual soul. So if from those God determined to create men physically, that that's what they physically look like, every single person, as is true now in the womb of parents, has to be a result of a direct act of creation on the part of God. So if in Darwinian evolution you mean that uh, the matter could generate spirit, then we, can, we don't hold that. On the other hand, I'm not sure Darwin would have gone along with this, but a lot of people who call for evolution believe that there's no difference between us and the pre-rational creature um, that, that look like maybe an ape or something like that. That we're we're all just the same. Well, we we can't hold that either. We have a spiritual soul that separates us off as persons and makes us untouchable and all these other things. So I don't know if I've answered your question or not, but there are certain interpretations of evolution that you can't hold and be a Catholic. And it's true that uh, the seven days of creation are not to be taken literally. But because, for one thing, the sun wasn't created until the fourth day. What they do is they represent this hierarchy I was talking about that God has ordered to himself, and the seven days are in the order. However, the fact that man was created in a separate act of creation, and woman, of course, from man, that is defined, and it's literal, and it has to be taken literally. Uh, we'll go to Brendan now in the great state of Louisiana, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Brenda, you're on with Father Brian Milady. 
Hey, Father Milady, thank you so much for taking my call. I have an aunt who's 94 years old. She has been away from the church between 40 and 50 years. She wants to come back to the church. So we were talking, and she says Mary had other children. And I said, no, she didn't. And she said, the scripture says that Joseph knew her not until she had Jesus. So if you could explain that a little bit better to me so that I can get it to her, I would appreciate it. I can't remember the explanation totally. Dr. Hahn and other people have addressed this. The traditional Catholic commentaries all address it, too. The until is a Semiticism. And, you know, again, we're dealing with people who are making judgments based on English translations of Greek translations of Aramaic or, or texts, and they suffer in the translation. The until is not a matter of time of judgment or something like that. So it doesn't mean before or after. Uh, in fact, the traditional teaching of the church is that Mary did not have other children, and Joseph, in no sense, violated her virginity. And in fact, there is a, tre a teaching, a tradition, that both of them took vows of virginity. The Josephite, and that's what the whole theology of the Josephite marriage is. Now, if I had time, I'd look it up in a commentary for you, but a Catholic commentary, because there are some very good ones, especially the one from the 50s. But uh, the until is not to be used as a, a statement of before and after. Yeah, and really, Brenda, one of the best explanations I've heard, and I don't know the particular scripture, but there's an Old Testament passage where uh, one person was said to have partaken of a certain practice until the day that he died. So he certainly didn't do it after he died. So that's a clear example of, of how until is used in that situation. If I had the text, I'd look it up in the Catholic. I know it's in Matthew, I'm pretty sure it's in Matthew, but because um, that's where the the infancy of Christ is treated from the point of view of uh, Joseph. But, um, you know, I just, uh, I, I know that that's the, that's the uh, traditional explanation. Thanks, Brenda. Uh, we really mm -hmm. appreciate the uh, phone call today. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. And just to prove that everybody in California has not lost their marbles, we have a, uh, an, an uh, email here from Patrick in Woodside, California. He says, hello, Open Line. I would like to say how much I enjoy Open Line, especially Thursdays with Father Milady. I find him to be very accessible with a real-life human approach. He'll take on any subject, including sex, and isn't afraid to say he doesn't know something. As a converted Catholic, I very much... Um, and very much a sinner, I greatly prize the weekly delivery of his common sense and often humorous messages. He's the only EWTN show I actually put on my schedule. Thanks for this show and all of your wonderful programming. So hats off to you, Father Milady, from one well, of your fellow Californians. Well, God reward you for that. Uh, I, I came I came over asked the commentary. This is the <laughs> traditional Catholic commentary from the 50s. The Semitic turn of phrase, till... While denying the action for the period preceding the verb brought forth implies nothing for the period that follows it. 
These words cannot be taken to imply that Virginia Mary was not afterwards preserved. So there you go. There you have it. 833-288-EWTN. It's a free phone call anywhere in the United States and Canada. That's 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Dominican father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of open phone lines for you and plenty of time for your questions at 833-288-3986. Uh, Jake from Ohio writes in, My question deals with, understa- <clears throat> excuse me, with understanding the liturgy of the hours better. Who reads the Liturgy of the Hours, and can those who are not ordained read it, and does this practice help you get closer to God? Okay, that's a very good question. Uh, First of all, the only people that are bound to read it by vocation under pain of sin are clerics. In other words, uh, especially priests and deacons, because they have an obligation to pray for the whole church and it's not just a private devotion. As you know, it reflects the worship of the temple. And uh, it's a prayer for the whole church. Secondly, there are religious orders, especially of sisters, who pray it also uh, as a matter of constitution. They used to, before Vatican II, say the little office of the Blessed Virgin, which was the same every day. It must have been awfully boring. But uh, it was very short, and it was simple, and it had the same structure almost as the office. But as I say, it was in the vernacular, too, not Latin. But the Vatican Council encouraged them to say the liturgy of the hours, and many of them did adopt that. Thirdly, it's highly recommended that the laity participate in it, and um, because it is, again, the prayer of the church, and especially now that much of it in many places in the vernacular, in other words, in our case, it would be English, it's much easier for them to participate. But for many years, you know, uh, the cathedral, especially in cathedrals, the hours were sung by the cathedral choir, and oftentimes the nobility or the king or the, or the, the lay, laity, if they could, would participate, and some of them had these beautifully ornate books of the hours that were, you know, painted by the monks if they were wealthy people and very expensive stuff. But, but it was it, it was always in Latin, and if you didn't really understand Latin that well, it could be quite intimidating. But today, uh, that's not the case. So I highly encourage you, if you can, to participate in the Liturgy of the Hours if your parish offers it. There are a number of parishes that do. Many young pastors, especially, are very solicitous to at least say their own office with the people in the church, at least for some of the hours. And it's to sanctify the day. It follows the scripture text, seven times a day I praise you, O Lord. So that would be midnight, uh, uh, 3 a.m., which would be lauds, learning prayer. 6 a.m. would be uh, terse. Uh, 9 a.m. would be sec. No, 6 a.m. would be prime. 
9 a.m. would be terse, noon would be sext, 3 p.m. would be uh, known, it just means third, sixth, and ninth hours by Roman reckoning. Then you have Vespers at 6 p.m., and then you have Compline at 9 p.m. Now, that's the ideal, which monastic offices often reflect. We don't, many of us do the ideal, but we're encouraged to participate in part of it, and for some of us, it's a part of our vocation. Uh, next up is Robert in Cincinnati, Ohio, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Robert, you're on with Father Milady. Uh, I have a question about 1 Corinthians 6.2. Uh, Paul says, don't you know that you will judge angels? And he doesn't explain this, so he seems to assume that they know this. How would they know this? Oh, I really wouldn't know. I'd have to look that up, too. You know, I, I, I know it's kind of sad, but at least Catholic priests... Uh, they don't memorize the Bible. <laughs> and I'm looking at 1 Corinthians 6.2. The redeemed will be judged. This is the commentary. Oh, and of course, come on. I hate these things. Sorry about that. <laughs> the redeemed will be judged, but will also be judges with God of the fallen angels. Uh, of this world, secular questions about property, in other words, he's talking about... Uh, Lawsuits between believers. And judgments for us, where our life will be held up, like Mary's, for example, against, first of all, to, against which the angels are um, determined in their relationship to salvation. But then also that includes the fallen angels. So, yeah. That's all I can tell you. That's all I know. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Robert. We appreciate the question <laughs> Thank you, Robert. today. Yes. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Still time for your questions. Um, Dane writes in, Within the last year, I've started a spiritual journey to become more devout in my Catholic faith. Prior to that, I would go to Mass most weeks, but would miss many weeks from time to time for various reasons. My wife, who is not Catholic, asked me recently why I do not receive the Eucharist at Mass, and I told her that it's because I did not fulfill my Sunday obligation in the past. This is something that I've been told my entire life, and so am I correct in that I am not able to receive Holy Communion until I can receive absolution through confession? I would say yes, did the case you gave me. If we're, te if we're speaking about Sunday Mass, I, I found that some of the laity, for some reason, seem to think it's a sin, a sin to be, missed or be late for daily Mass. He goes, no, 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 don't get scrupulous now. Come on. There's no obligation to that. Uh, but if it's Sunday Mass, yes, you can go to confession and go to communion. Yes. Why not? I don't know. And here's an anonymous email that I think uh, will speak to several people. You hear this from time to time. Uh, it says, I was wondering what to do if my parish is not very active in its community. And I want to be more active, a more active Catholic in an active Catholic community to expand and strengthen my faith. Doing it alone is kind of hard. Well, uh, as always, I think Protestants somewhat complain about this too, although they tend to have more of a fellowship. Uh, you know, my mother was a Methodist convert, and she thought Wesleyan youth was wonderful, and she was sad that Catholics didn't seem to have an equivalent to that. But... Um, if, it's, if your parish is dead, you might try starting something. 
And if that doesn't work, if you're not in a place where there's no uh, parish nearby, you might go there, you might get involved. I know people that have gotten involved in sisters' communities to help them out. And they have a community there, in a sense. Um, there's all kinds of opportunities to get involved in a more communal situation. But oftentimes that implies some initiative on, on your part, too. It's sad if your parish is dead, though. The, the priests should really be encouraging. He may not be able to do it himself, but he should be encouraging certain of the laity to found things or organizations or things that are more um, uh, socially minded. Yeah. Uh, Connie writes in, I've been a Catholic all my life, but I don't understand purgatory. Non-Catholics ask me to explain it, and I can't. Haven't those who have passed gone on to heaven? All right. This is a good question, too. Uh, they will go to heaven, yes. If Now, of course, if you're a saint, you experience your purgatory here on earth, let's say through people hating you and your you know, family or through misunderstanding, through physical suffering, even cancer or something like that. But if you're not a saint, see, uh, you have some difficulties still in your moral life that haven't been resolved. And the example I always use comes from uh, an English writer named Dorothy Sayers, who was actually an Episcopalian, but wrote a translation of Dante's comedy, Divine Comedy. And of course, the third of Dante's comedy is called The Purgatory, in which the uh, uh, people atone for the temporal punishment due to their sin. Now, eternal punishment has to do with heaven. So people are worthy to go to heaven if they die in the state of grace. But temporary punishment has to do with things on earth. So the example I always use is, let's say you had a dear friend, you're very close, and let's say if you're a woman, that friend has this absolutely beautiful dress. And one day in a rage, because you're mad at your friend, you take a pair of scissors and cut up the dress. You're filled with innocent remorse, you beg forgiveness from your friend, and your friend is an especially forgiving person, loving person, and forgives you. Well, that's good, but the thing is, two things still remain. One is the dress is still sitting up there ripped up, and the second is the disorder in your own character that led you to treat someone who loved you in such a shabby way. Both of those have to be made up for or atoned for, and that's what happens in purgatory. The difference is that on earth, we can do positive works to have our own purgatory on earth. But once we die, we can't do positive works. All our suffering is passive. It's received suffering in which we, of course, we cooperate because we allow it to happen to us. But we can't do anything to speed it up. That's why it's a holy and wholesome thing to pray for the dead, according to Maccabees, because we help those to resolve whatever issues they have left over from being on earth so that when they go to heaven they'll be finally freed from all those things you know we catholics often tend to think that you can be magically transformed morally you can't be magically transformed morally you can convert yes and and beg repentance and forgiveness and god forgives you 
But then there's all this stuff still in your character that needs to be resolved. And it's not magic. It takes time and it takes effort. And of course, if you can't make the effort in purgatory, others have to do it for you. And that's what indulgences are all about. So what we're doing is we're uh, allowing ourselves to be wiped clean of those things that reflect time so that we may enjoy eternity more uh, in a more loving way when we meet Jesus. Be sure to join us for Women of Grace tomorrow morning and every morning, Monday through Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, and an encore later at 3 a.m. Eastern if you happen to be a night owl right here on EWTN Radio. Jeanette shows you how to embrace the Catholic faith with joy and peace. That's Women of Grace tomorrow morning, 11 a.m. Eastern Time right here on EWTN Radio. Next up is Brian in St. Louis, Missouri, listen on, listening on Covenant Radio. Brian, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Yeah, I get asked a question a lot. I've heard a lot of people ask the question, what happens to people who have never heard about Jesus or the Gospel? And uh, there is a provision in um, the Catechism that says that they can be saved, and there is a possibility for them. I'm kind of wondering, though, is there a point where they do have to come face-to-face with Christ and kind of uh, understand who He is before they can enter Heaven? And would purgatory be the place where they would go first? Five questions in one. (laughs) I would remember them all. Um, First of all, uh, let's be clear. Uh, The only people who can't be saved are the damned. (laughs) Because it's not over for them, right? While you're on earth... Depend, and this is a very complicated question to answer in one minute. While you're on earth, uh, all your positive uh, movements toward religion um, are helpful for your salvation. But if, in order for them to be fruitful in the fullest sense, they have to be in some way connected with Christ. Now, this connection can be extremely implicit But the more you know about Christ, the more explicit it has to be. And the way St. Thomas puts it is this. Some people are members of the church in act. Other people are members of the church in potency. And that potency or potential becomes more immediate the further are you up the the food chain, you could say, with receiving uh, revelations about God. And uh, no, you may not have to go to purgatory. There have been people who died. For example, the uh, Ugandan martyrs, there are people who died while they're catechumens. And their death is considered a baptism by blood in which they go to heaven. But for most people, the give and take in their personalities would lead them to, in some sense, experience purgatory. But you can be saved, but... If you know that Christ is the Savior and you reject him, then you obviously, under that, as long as that condition remains, how can you be saved by Christ when you don't reject, when you don't agree with it, that it exists or is a redeemer? There, are, there is a theory today, which is a terrible theory, that just because you talk about ultimate realities, 
means you're really Christian. So the person who held this theory said an atheist is really a Christian because he's denying ultimate realities. Well, what? What? <laughs> That's totally illogical. No, um, you have to have some positive aspects in which you relate to the Church of Christ and to Christ, uh, even if it's very, very implicit. So when St. Thomas comes to this, following St. Paul, he says there are two things that are absolutely necessary to be saved. The first is that you believe in one God, and the second is that you um, believe that you, you, know, you need to be redeemed from sin. Those are the two most necessary things. But other than that, it depends on where you exist in your ability to know. The actual rubric under which people who don't enter the church can be saved is what's called invincible ignorance. In other words, they don't know, but they don't know that they don't know, and there's no way they can find out. And God never bounds binds someone to the impossible. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Kathy writes in, when we die, do we get to see our loved ones? My husband passed away, but I read somewhere that we that it won't be a happy reunion. That's assuming we both go to heaven. Will it be a joyous, a joyful reunion? Of course. Uh, there is a question again in St. Thomas, where he asks if the fellowship of friends is necessary for happiness. And he says, on earth, yes, because we need friends not like drowning people who can't find affection anywhere, but because we need companions on our journey, you know, to correct us, to encourage us, and things like that. In heaven, the fellowship of friends is necessary because God alone suffices. However, distinctions are very important. Because there'll be other people in heaven, namely your husband, hopefully, uh, all of us will rejoice in God. And we're not going to forget what happened here on earth. So all those things, now that the struggle is finally over, uh, the good points we can re rejoice that we knew about and experienced, the bad points we can see as learning experiences to this. And so in the communion of saints, which includes your husband, I hope, and him with you, all the things that you experienced here on earth will be finally transfigured in God. And in Christ, you'll see all things, but again, as he sees them. Uh, we have an email from Myrna with a, an ever-increasing problem in our culture here, especially in the United States. She says, Hi, Father. My niece was baptized Catholic, but her parents have converted to Protestantism in the last eight or nine years. She's 23 years old, and she's going to marry outside the Catholic Church. We were invited, but I don't know what the correct thing to do is. I believe we should not attend. What are your thoughts? Okay, my thoughts are this, and there are other people who would disagree with me who are just as, you know, just as Catholic and as good a theologian or bad as I am. Um, the wedding itself, I do not think you should attend because what your presence says is that you agree with what's happening, and you don't. On the other hand, you want to manifest love for your niece. For one thing, because maybe you can attract her back, 
in the end. And some people think that it would be good or sufficient to attend the wedding reception to do that. Now, I tend to be somewhat of that school because it's not the service itself. However, there are other moralists who are more rigorous than I am who maintain that even that is giving consent uh, to what happened. So I tend to think that it's impossible to make an absolute judgment on this regarding things like attending the reception, but every person has to decide this imprudence for themselves. They don't want to cut off contact completely, but on the other hand, they don't want to say that they assent or agree with what's going on. I do think attendance at the wedding would do that. But Very good. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. We could probably still squeeze in your phone call at 833-288-3986. Here's an interesting question uh, from Earl. Uh, he says, Dear Father Milady, if you make a vow to God that you did not understand the full extent of, that you do not completely understand, while you are in temporary pain, saying you will do something if God removes the temporary pain, and you were baptized but not yet confirmed Catholic, does that vow count or not? And if it does, is there another way you could pay the vow instead? <laughs> Keep in mind, the vow was not a vow of chastity or anything like that. It was a vow about my specific situation. Warm regards, Earl. <laughs> Are you sure you're not related to the casuistic Jewish rabbis? <laughs> I mean, this sounds like a rabbinical question where you add all these circumstances. Uh, I would generally say this is, uh, if it's under any duress whatsoever, that it's not real. And it doesn't have to be observed. Uh, that's why when people make religious profession, they ask them all the questions to be sure they're doing so from free choice and not constrained in any sense. And we've had cases, because you know today we have this stuff, psychological cases of people that have entered religious orders who later realized they did it for the wrong reasons, okay? And they've had emotional breakdowns or whatever. Well, they have two choices. The first is, now that you know this, you need to experience therapy and get healed. And then some people have wanted to re-say re their vows because they finally feel free. As to whether you should do that or not, I really don't know. It's a difficult question. But other people have just decided, well, I made these vows under intense fear. Let's say I feared the opposite sex because I was molested. Well, you obviously don't have to observe that. I mean, you could leave. Uh, and and religious orders of sisters especially find out this happened, uh, of course, if they're, they're, they're worth their, their salt, they'll find out before they make final vows. But um, they just encourage the per they won't necessarily throw the person out because they want to support them up to a point, but they, they can't make vows then. And if it's something trivial, remember, a vow is a promise made to God of a better and possible thing. Uh, we have the famous example of Martin Luther who was scared of thunderstorms. And supposedly the reason he became an Augustinian friar was he was in this horrible thunderstorm with lightning. He was deathly afraid of lightning. And he said, by St. Anne, if I survive, I'll become a friar. 
<laughs> so then he supposedly felt called upon to do that. I, if it's if that's true, it was a ridiculous basis on which to make vows, and his superiors should have known that and figured it out. And quickly, we'll head to Rick in the great state of Mississippi, listening at EWTN.com. Rick, just a couple minutes left with Father. What's your question today? Father, how important is the funeral mass for my salvation and redemption in terms of does it need to happen or not? And if I'm cremated, can the funeral mass be held after I'm cremated? Uh, Okay. Well, one of my problems is that I'm not a parish priest. And I don't deal with these things all the time. Um, But I I believe that uh, you need to have your body blessed before it's cremated. Why? Because we don't think the body is evil. We think the body is good. And the body has participated in all the goodness that you've done throughout your life. So uh, I think that it needs to at least be blessed which is what we do at the end of the funeral ritual, as you know. As for the Mass, I wouldn't want to know why a per- I wouldn't understand why a person wouldn't want a Mass said. I mean, um, again, I, my poor family, my, my mother had a thing about funerals from her childhood, and she threatened me with death if I had a funeral. <laughs> and I said, well, can I say Mass for you? Yes, but I don't want to be there, is what she said. <laughs> but uh, I wouldn't want to know why a person won't want to have Mass said for them. Because it's a holy and wholesome thing to pray for the dead. That's all we're doing. Thank you so much, Rick. We appreciate that phone call today. Um, We're flat out of time today, but if you'd like to call in to a future episode of Open Line, jump on the line early because it always gets a little more crowded as the show goes on. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? May the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be sent upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father Brian Malady, our celebrity producer, Charles Beery, our call screener, Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Thursday. We're back at it tomorrow with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. Until we get together tomorrow, God bless.